Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the final episode of Strike Talk. Americans like to keep score. No, Americans are obsessed with keeping score. In every way, we seek to know who won, who lost, and by how much. This makes a lot of sense in sports. When the clock hits zero at a football game, it's meaningful to know who has more points. That's how the sideline reporters know whom to interview. But in almost every other way, it's pretty dumb. We love dogs, they mean a lot to us. Do we really need to declare one of them best in show? Did we really have to say at the 1975 Oscars that Art Carney's performance in Harry and Tonto had been better than the performances of Jack Nicholson in Chinatown, Dustin Hoffman in Lenny, or Al Pacino in Godfather 2? Our need to declare a winner in all things can lead us as a culture in some pretty unproductive directions. On November 9th, 1993, Vice President Al Gore and businessman H. Ross Perot met on Larry King Live to debate the merits of the Clinton administration's North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA. The show drew the highest rating of any program in CNN's history to that point. Everyone watched as they argued about NAFTA and what it would mean to the U.S. economy. When the program ended, every single pundit asked the same question, who won the debate? Not which arguments were the most persuasive, not will NAFTA be good for Americans? Nope, it was a contest, and CNN needed to declare a winner as if it had been a football game. A month later, President Clinton signed it into law. 30 years have passed since then. Here's what turned out to be unimportant, who won the debate. Here's what turned out to be very important, whether or not NAFTA was a good idea. Hint, it wasn't. Today, roughly twice a year, the MAGA contingent in Congress decides to shut our government down. And every time they do it, CNN says the same thing. This is a big win for the Democrats who are certain to come out of this shutdown with a political boost. In a government shutdown, vital services stop. People suffer. The country looks incompetent. Everybody loses. Yet we stubbornly insist on declaring a winner, that all-consuming scoreboard again. Because a handful of billionaires found a way to increase their profits during COVID, we say they won the pandemic, as if that pandemic didn't kill 1.1 million Americans. Often, keeping score is worse than unproductive. It's harmful. We are raising a generation of kids who are obsessed with who among their peers has the most likes, the most views, the most streams, the most friends. The very act of counting these things creates anxiety in children, yet we keep doing it. The other problem with keeping score is that in anything but sports, it often blinds us to a much larger picture. Ask any American who won the Civil War, North or South. The answer is always the North did. This is nonsense, ridiculous. 
When that war began, slavery was legal in half the country. When the war ended, America had rid itself of slavery forever. Pre-war, it was common usage to say the United States are. When the war ended, people began to say, as we do today, the United States is. So who won the war? The whole country did, period. Even Vicki Haley doesn't know it. That war, which took the lives of 600,000 Americans, ended in utter evil. Everybody wins when that happens. More, the South won the Civil War in that the war kept the South in the Union. Look at the benefits that privilege continues to yield today. Southern states get far more in federal dollars than they pay in federal taxes. For example, the typical resident of Connecticut pays three times more in federal taxes than a resident of Mississippi pays. I don't begrudge them. If those states had been allowed to secede, it's hard to see America winning World War II, which saved the entire human race from a murderous kind of fascism. So yeah, the country won the Civil War. The whole world won the Civil War. Negotiations work that way too. UPS and the Teamsters just negotiated up to deadline over a contract covering UPS's 340,000 workers. That contract, a five-year deal, will cost UPS tens of billions of dollars. Before the ink on it had dried, it was already being hailed as a giant win for labor and therefore a giant defeat for UPS. This is so juvenile, it makes my head spin. UPS won that negotiation every bit as much as its workers did because UPS can now count on five years of uninterrupted service from a well-trained, highly efficient, and happy workforce. That's a rising tide lifting all boats. Here in Hollywood, scorekeeping is especially seductive. I know this because I've done it too. We talk incessantly about who won the WGA strike, who won the SAG strike, but guess what? Before the strikes, our business was on its way to self-immolation. The economics of streaming had put us on a path to nowhere, and two guilds were about to become extinct. That's been prevented now, which means we all won, because we're a community. More than anything else, that's what this podcast has been about. Community, our interconnectedness, our mutual dependence, our shared love of the work. The 29 weeks of that strike were perfect proof. We all just suffered. We all just bled. And if the Teamsters or IATSE go out next July, we will all bleed again, even as we righteously support them. We all want networks and studios to thrive. We all want box office numbers to grow. We all want the Oscars to draw huge ratings. We all want broadcast TV to reclaim its audience. We are all imperiled by the threats posed by TikTok and YouTube and by the soulless power that is AI. We all love popcorn, and we all want Hollywood to remain the world's dream factory. There aren't two sides to that. Yes, I unloaded on the AMPTS regularly on this platform. I think it, as an entity, is fundamentally flawed, and it depends on a process that is entirely broken, one that is desired to prevent innovation in deal-making. Yes, I made the AMPTS the bad guy in this narrative. But I did so expressly because that process turns those negotiations into a competition, creating distrust and sending everyone into tribal corners instead of engendering partnership between labor and management. And we are ultimately partners, co-parents. Together, we just saved our business. So now, the rancor behind us, the pain becoming a memory instead of a daily ache. Let's go back to work together. Let's score touchdowns, lots of them. But remember, it's not a zero-sum game. And when those points go up on the scoreboard, the team listed up there reads everybody, because we now know if anyone's keeping score, we're all losing. To discuss that, I am thrilled to welcome the person who made this podcast possible, Mike Fleming of Deadline. Mike, welcome. It's great to have you here. 
Well, I may be Strike Talk's biggest fan, honestly. You treated this like a weekly television show, and you threw yourself into it, and um, I, my hat is off to you, my friend. Thank you for the support. All right, so we're here to talk about what the experience has meant and what we've learned. Maybe like everybody else, we all get a bit of PTSD and we don't really want to think about what we just went through. You mentioned IATSE. You mentioned the Teamsters. Is it possible that they would have the sand to actually stop this business again? Could something like that actually happen? And what can be done right now? to formulate ways that that doesn't necessarily have to happen? That's a great question. And the answer is yes, of course they can walk. The last time that uh, that contract came up, uh, IATSE, it was uh, approved, I think it was 50.3% yes and 49.7% no. You can hardly call that a ringing endorsement of the last deal they signed. Uh, if I were a part of IATSE, and, and I do talk to Mike Miller now and then, I'd be looking at what the actors just gained, and I'd be looking at what the writers just gained, and I'd be looking at what it cost my membership uh, in IATSE, and yeah, I'd be looking to do better. Um, so I think they will have a very righteous position, and the Teamsters will too. I mean, the Teamsters, their support of the Writers Guild was spectacular from the start. Lindsay's fierce and very special. I think anybody that ex expects those to be just sort of pro forma negotiations is insane. But the biggest lesson that we learned in this strike, you know, going back to that idea of community, is that the break was never between the writers and the companies. That really wasn't where the problem was. The writers proposed something, you know, back in March. And that's essentially what the writers got when the strike ended. The writers, it wasn't like there was a wavering between what the writers wanted and what the companies were willing to give them. The break was between, from the start, the legacy media companies and the tech media companies. And they didn't want the same things because they don't have the same goals. And they took months to get back to the Writers Guild with a proposal, not because the proposal changed, but because they as an entity, the AMPTS, couldn't get it together, couldn't comprise an offer. I'm sorry, compose an offer. So could this happen again? Yeah. If they continue to lean on the AMPTS as the negotiating um, entity, if Carol Lombardini is still the voice, someone who has the power to say no, but does not have the power to say yes, and does not have the interest in innovating a new kind of deal or a new kind of deal-making, this will happen again. The system is completely broken. The process is fucked. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. The, the, the CEOs now know that their reliance on the AMPTS costs them tens of millions of dollars unnecessarily. The dirty little secret of the Writers Guild strike was if in April they had said to the writers, hey, we'll give you about 60% of what you want. Writers, whether the negotiating committee wanted to take it or not, the membership would have said, well, that's better than a strike. And they would have said yes. Instead, the AMPTS said, we'll give you nothing. And they created, you know, tiki torches and pitchforks, right? They, they made the, the guild so pissed off that the guild went out on a righteous strike and it wound up costing the companies vastly more than they had to spend. They all know it. 
They know the system doesn't work. They know the process is broken. If they if they have the sand to break it up, uh, then this can be avoided. Do you think that, I mean, you know, we've just been through this double strike. Each Each of the guilds got something that they felt they needed. Uh, how much different is what IATSE and the Teamsters need? And shouldn't all this hard ground that's been turned over be useful in making for softer trenching in this next standoff? The answer is I haven't looked at the uh, demand pattern from either IATSE or the Teamsters. I don't know their deals terribly well. I have to believe that the CEOs in the AMPTS, when they made the deal with the writers, saved enough money for the actors and everybody else. And when they made the deal with the actors, they saved enough money for IOTSE and the Teamsters. Um, it can't be that they just spent everything on the writers and the actors. They knew these negotiations were coming and they know who Lindsay is and they know what IOTSE is. So I have to believe that they are already prepared. There was a chorus of people in Hollywood who were watching all this unfold and they were angry because there was so much time when nobody was talking. I mean, if you if you handled your marital problems like that, you would be divorced. If you didn't talk for a hundred days, you, your marriage would not last. Why does this have to be the way it is done? It doesn't have to be the way that it's done. Um, that's kind of the point. You have to understand how the AMPTS works. I mean, I did it three times. You go in there, it's this big, uh, this big kind of factory looking space in, in the Galleria. When you walk in, you sign in and you go to the left, which is where the writer's caucus room is, and you caucus and you talk about what you're going to do. And then it's time to meet and you walk uh, across the office to the, the big room on the right, which is where the AMPTS is. And it's this long set of tables. Um, you sit at one, the Writers Guild sits at one, and typically the uh, the executive director sits in the center with the uh, chairs of the negotiating committee on either side, um, and you're sitting directly opposite Carol and Carol's right-hand person, and then the labor lawyers um, from all the various big eight, and then three more rows behind that. So you're squaring off with, I don't know, 75 lawyers. And they say, okay, here's our proposal. And instead of discussing it, you say, okay, thank you. We'll be back. And you get up and you leave and you file out and you go to your caucus room and you discuss their proposal. And a couple hours later, having discussed it, you send a signal saying, okay, we're ready to respond. And you file back in. And there's a conversation before you walk into that room where they literally say to you as a member of the Writers Guild, no facial expressions. Do not react in any way. Don't look happy. Don't look sad. Don't joke. Don't be personable in any way. You just sit there poker faced, so did the 75 lawyers. And you say, here's our response. We'll take uh, item A off of our demand list if you'll take item B off of your proposal list. And we will meet you halfway on item C of our list if you'll take item 22 off of your list. And they go, okay, thank you. And then they file out and you file out. It takes forever. If you really want to settle it, you get in a room with the uh, negotiating chairs and a couple CEOs and you say, here's what we need. And they go, oh, here's what we need. And you solve it, right? You don't need Carol. She couldn't be more useless in this process. 
because as I said, she cannot say yes. She can only say no. And because she doesn't think about ways to solve problems. She only thinks about ways to apply patterns. So no, it doesn't have to be that way. They need to leave the AMPTS. They need to break it up. It's fucking useless. It doesn't achieve anything. And now every CEO knows it costs them tens of millions of dollars they didn't have to spend. It broke right in front of them. They only have to negotiate three deals this year, right? One is easy. It's the DGA. They always settle. Okay, I could negotiate that deal, right? But then the two that actually wanted something, the WJ and SAG, both went out on strike. Crippling strikes. The CEOs know that doesn't work. So are they going to approach IOTC and Teamsters differently? I'm a little bit of a broken record now. I hope so. Things moved when Donna Langley, David Zaslav, uh, Ted Sarandos, Bob Iger got in a room and talked with the guild leaders. Um, but I mean, for them to be doing that all the way through, it, it doesn't doesn't that weaken their leverage strategically? Doesn't that put them in a bad spot? I don't know why, because the guild is walking in there in that spot from the start. We're, it's not like there's anybody in the guild that we're hiding. We walk in there with our executive director and our chief negotiators and our president. These are the people who can say yes, right? So why wouldn't we be sitting with our opposite number, the people on that side who can say yes? I mean, I know this is going to blow everybody's mind, but this didn't need to, this didn't need to happen. This could have been solved in April. Right. And having solved the, the Writers Guild strike by preventing the strike entirely, they could have solved SAG. None of this needed to happen. This could have been a phone call. But again, it comes back to what I was saying in the intro. Everybody's keeping score. And as long as we're keeping score, we're all losing. And so the CEOs from the start, I was begging them to get in a room with the Writers Guild. And they were saying, well, we can't be in that room without Carol Lombardini because Carol Lombardini is our chief negotiator and you have your chief negotiator in the room. So we'd be at a competitive disadvantage. It was kind of adorable, actually, when you think about it, that like Bob Iger and Ted Sarandos, you know, that they might be afraid of Ellen Stutzman. Of course they weren't. It was just gamesmanship and, and it cost everybody. And it was unnecessary. And we don't ever need to do it again. We've now seen that the, the, um, the hood is up. We've seen how the engine works and we've seen how it breaks down. Deadline took a bit of uh, heat. We had a story that basically said that, um, that some sources were of the mind that the, the first deal would have to be made with SAG and that basically the writers were going to be their usual ornery selves and they were going to have to be taught a lesson. Um, and shortly after that, the SAG basically said no. And I always wondered, did the prospect of SAG leadership realizing that if they made a deal after the Directors Guild made a deal, that they would be leaving their, you know, their their sister guild out in the cold at the mercy of the AMPTS, as you call them? I don't think that was a factor for them. I, I think the deal that was being offered to SAG-AFTRA was so appalling. Um, they had no choice. 
I mean, if you look at what was in that deal, they had no choice. They had to go on strike. And Carol knew it. Just like Carol knew that what she was offering the Writers Guild was going to force the Writers Guild to go out. None of that was a mystery. It was poor calculation. Um, I, I think one of the things that the AMPTS really didn't see coming was how the media was going to support um, the unions in both cases. Uh, America's belief in unionism is just peaking right now. And I don't think the companies saw that coming. The popularity of unions is at a 60-year high in America. It's over 70%. And among young voters, it's over 80%. It's never been anywhere near that number. You can sort of feel out there that Americans believe that um, corporate America has gotten completely out of control, that you know the price gouging and the stock buybacks and the laws written by lobbyists, all of that has just been so detrimental to the average you know, working class and middle class American. Um, and Americans now know that the government's not going to rescue them from it, certainly not while Mike Johnson is swinging a gavel. So they have no choice but to depend on unions to be the line here. And I think, um, I, I don't think the companies understood that. I also really think the companies did not understand how much AI scared the crap out of everybody and really scared the crap out of the very media that were going to be covering the strike, which made TV, newspaper, and uh, internet coverage of the strike universally supportive of the guilds because everybody on the internet knows what AI can do. What wasn't collared about AI in these agreements that still keeps a guy like you up at night? I have placed my faith in the good judgment of Chris Kaiser and David Goodman and Ellen Stutzman um, on the Writers Guild side and, and Fran and Duncan on the SAG side. I think they got the best deal they could get on AI. We said from week two on this podcast, you can always tell the thing that the companies don't want to give you. It's the thing that'll be the last thing on the table. Um, it was AI, sure enough, the language on AI. I, I don't know that the companies know yet what a threat it is to them. Um, I still think that they were sort of prophylactically trying to protect their right to be greedy because I think they think that somehow having lots of permission on AI is going to make it possible for them to maximize their profits. Uh, I don't think they understand how much time they're going to be spending suing each other. Uh, in the next 10 years. But either way, AI is just one of those places where we got to go back three years from now and just make sure we keep strengthening the language. And most recently, there's been talk that Sherry Redstone is looking to fold up the tent and have some sort of a transaction with her empire, which she fought so hard to gain control over, her father's empire, CBS, Paramount, et cetera, et cetera. I find it a little hard to actually be able to put my thumb on on an incredible tangible tangible benefit that came out of the writers guilds spat with the agents and all of that stuff because there was shrapnel all around but when i look at the fox sale to disney i'm hard pressed to see how any tangible benefit to disney was worth basically gutting a viable major studio that generates quality product and some of the greatest movies that I've seen since I've been alive. And now we're talking about Paramount 
and you know, and Warner Brothers is one of the ones that are kicking the tires on this thing. And I'm just thinking to myself, the first thing they're going to say because they've been choking on debt since David Zaslav got there is, well, well, here's something we can do. Let's lay everybody off, every duplicate position, et cetera, et cetera. Let's let's gut this division, that division. We're already making movies. What do we need? What do we need uh, Paramount for? Uh, what do we need this, that, or the other thing for? Uh, you know, w- this gives me great pause. We don't seem to celebrate the creative victories that we see in this craft that we all. You're part of it. I hover. I've hovered around it my entire career because I'm just. I love the process, and I love to see something like Oppenheimer uh, or Poor Things, just or or Killers of the Flower Moon come out. Where is this whole business going in this age of contraction and decisions made not by creative people but by tech lords and um, trying to curry to Wall Street? And how does what happened with these labor stoppages, how does that factor into what we may see in the future? I forget who said it. It might have been C.B. DeMille. It might have been George Stevens. Forgive me. I actually said it on one of the podcasts once when I had notes in front of me. But the quote was, when this business was run on picture money, there was joy. When the business started to be run on Wall Street money, there was despair. And it's that simple. I look at Paramount and I think, okay, they made The Godfather, Chinatown, Fatal Attraction, Reds. I mean, let me just, I I can keep going, right? I mean, what a contribution they made to the history of movies. They they exported um, American genius to the rest of the world. And there wasn't just a dollar figure attached to it. There was a, a cultural impact. They, what Paramount has contributed has been massive. And now it's just a product. Um, it's just a profit or loss number on a, on a sheet somewhere that David Zaslav is going to look at when he decides what Paramount is worth and what the people who run Paramount are worth and what the people who actually make things at Paramount are worth. Um, that's optimization. That's a Silicon Valley idea. That's a Wall Street idea. Of course, they're going to lay people off. You know, we started talking about in the uh, in the podcast this possibility that you could wind up with four companies running everything in Hollywood: Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Disney. It's there's a real scenario in which you don't have a big eight; you have a big four. And maybe Zaslav is thinking. Well, if I acquire Paramount, I can make it a big five. Um, I suppose that's what he's thinking. I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, he answers to someone who is uh, of such ungodly wealth. I I can't even uh, imagine what those decisions are like. Is optimization a good thing for Hollywood? Is conglomeration a good thing for Hollywood? Well, unquestionably, no. It's a terrible thing for Hollywood. It's, It's bad for human beings. Not that that should be factored in. Um, It's bad for the product. It's bad for the consumer. It's bad for everybody. Um, But again, you're going to need the United States government to do a level set here and to decide that it has to step in um, in terms of antitrust legislation 
Um, you know, the United States government could stop Warner Brothers and Paramount from gobbling each other, but it will have to. Does the United States government have the sand to do that? Again, if Mike Johnson is swinging a gavel, it seems unlikely. So what do you see as you get back to your day job that makes you feel optimistic about the condition of storytelling and the possibilities that are that are coming up the road after just a uh, pencils down half a year? My optimism is based on the same thing it's always been based on, which is the love of craft and the love of storytelling that has completely infected everybody in the business and always will. Um, you know, the people that I talk to every day, we never, ever talk about profit and loss. We just talk about how to make stories better. We talk about movies that inspire us. Someone called me uh, last night. We talked for an hour about the Beatles documentary, Get Back, and just how brilliant it was and how much it made us want to go tell stories. That's meaningful because whether or not the business is kind or smart or uh, forward-looking or penurious and, and, um, and reckless, it will still draw people who care about those things. And those people will still somehow find a way. You know, if you go out on the uh, polar ice caps, every once in a while you'll find a little teeny blade of green <laughs> poking through, right? That's the people that I work with. Despite the obstacles, life finds a way. The creative spirit finds a way. It always will. We'll always need unions to protect us. We'll always need each other to keep ourselves inspired, but we'll never give up because this is our calling. This is what we want to do. I wanted to give a shout out to uh, to my uh, comrade in arms, Dave Robb, who was uh, our longtime labor reporter and the labor reporter for, you know, for, for every trade over the course of his long career. And he came down with an operable uh, brainstem cancer and passed away. And I can tell you that right up until the very end, he was asking me, so how is the vote going? Is the, is the, you know, is, is SAG going to uh, ratify the, this, the, you know, he was just a big union guy was his, he, he lived and breathed it. it. It was very sad that we had to let go of our, uh, our, our, our lion. And we, I got to do his obit and we was able to talk to him about all the things that he did and all the people that he shined a light on um, from children who were being exploited and, uh, and housed uh, in, in, in a place, uh, you know, where young actors go when they come in and Dave found out that there were pedophiles staying there to uh, blacklisted writers and, and getting them credit to, um, to minorities of, of all stripe. And so I just wanted to say, since this is, uh, since so many of your listeners will know Dave, that I just wanted to say, uh, bravo, Dave Rob. Amen. And I want to thank Todd Garner. Um, because when this whole thing started, when the Writers Guild strike began, you asked Todd to host uh, the podcast. Todd asked me to be the first guest. Um, I said yes. And then me being me, I completely took over <laughs> the show <laughs> um, and decided to um, to make it my own personal um, Howard Beale 
platform. But um, it reminds me when I think about Todd or when I think about Dave Robb, that this is always about people. That the strike was about people. It was something that um, I don't think the companies understood, that they were looking at it in terms of numbers, but the, the Writers Guild was looking at it in terms of people people who were suffering, people who were making a, 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 who were actually living the dream, like they were on a show and couldn't afford to keep their kids in school. Um, there was so much widespread suffering in both guilds. That's why those people went on strike. And there was so much community in both guilds that that's why uh, all those people were able to stay on strike and maintain their courage. You know, I had a question for you, actually, uh, to turn the interview around. I know what happened after the second episode where we interviewed John Wells. Again, people were coming up to me and stopping me on the picket lines and saying, whoa, I never thought of it that way. John was amazing. That's why I decided to dive in and, and to treat it, like you said, like a weekly television show. What were you seeing from the start that made you think you should keep us on the air? Honestly, I was at Variety back in the day when Deadline was put on the map by its founder, Nikki Fink, in the way that she covered the Writers Guild situation. Um, and she basically, she basically lent it as a platform to the writers. And you could see what happened. We were covering it in the most neutral fashion, and uh, she was not. She was advocating things. And um, so uh, my partner, Nellie Andreeva, and I felt very important that we wanted to uphold that deadline tradition. And we wanted to give a we wanted to provide a harbor in the storm for writers because, you know, writers by nature are insecure. And they basically, it's what fuels us all, right? Even, I, I, and I hate to put myself in that group, but, but I guess I kind of am. We all push words around on a page. And I wanted them to basically have something that they could rely on that was theirs. And I never imagined that it, this would take off as quickly as it did and be such an enduring, important, is like a lighthouse that you see from a distance in rough seas. That's how I looked at it. And, and I knew darn well what you, where your sensibilities lie and, um, and, and you're squarely a Writers Guild uh, guy. You know, you help negotiate these contracts. And we were completely comfortable with that because we felt it was important that the writers know that we haven't forgotten them. Even though Nikki passed away, we still, we, 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 we hadn't forgotten them. It was important. And I just never imagined you would accomplish it so quickly and so decisively the way that you did. And I'm, I'm going to always be grateful for that. Well, uh, gratitude goes both ways. I mean, here's my feeling about it. And, and um, I still have an outro to do. So I don't want to leave my, my game in the locker room. But how many people in, in show business history have had the opportunity that I was just given? None. <laughs> Nobody. Nobody in the history of the guild or any guild, um, no one in the history of Hollywood during a strike has gotten a platform like I just had where I could just show up every week, interview whoever the hell I wanted, 
say whatever the hell I wanted and get complete support from Deadline and blast it out to the entire town so that the people on the lines could hear it and the CEOs could hear it and everybody's parents could hear it and everybody's kids could hear it if they really wanted to. Um, this was a once in a lifetime opportunity that was granted to me. And I am so grateful for it. It was completely life-changing for me and it was all made possible by you. So thank you. Well, listen, you know, and, and my one thought about that is when I left Variety to come to Deadline, I Variety was a more um, regimented place. I'd give my copy over to editors and they'd varnish the wit and the edge out of it. Um, and then they would publish it, you know, put it out the next day. And suddenly there was nobody between what was on my mind and my readers. So if I had to take my lumps, if I did something wrong, I would hear about it right away because everybody, even back then, everybody read Deadline. And so this whole publication, the thing that makes it special is that you can do that, what you just said. But the key is, what do you do with that opportunity? It's something that I think about all the time. I want to make the most of the opportunity to speak directly to the people in position of power. And I got to say, we're coming up on New Year's. And if I had one wish, it, it would be that more of these guys at the top of these studios realize that they hold in their hand. They're really the flame keepers of the greatest form of art this company has produced this side of jazz. And it isn't just about, well, if I lay off a bunch more people, my stock will go up a dollar. It's got to be more than that. This is, <clears throat> this to me, I don't know if you'd call, go as far as a sacred trust because it is a business, art meets commerce, but I just would like, I would love it if more of them thought that way. And doing things like, um, you know, putting, making writers' rooms viable enough to indoctrinate the next group of great showrunners, um, that kind of stuff. You, there's just you're you're on the side of the angels with that stuff, and so um, I just I just hope that more of them maybe start to think this way. Paramount should exist. There should be a way to do it. I know David Ellison is looking to do something. Um, and I remember way back when, this was long after I left Variety. Variety was on its last legs, believe it or not. And Jay Penske bought it. Other people were looking to buy it at a fire sale price. And I just hoped that Jay would win it because I knew that he he would build it. He would not gut it. He would not exploit the brand, uh, the value of the brand name. He would do something with it. And he's done that. And I do believe it is possible. I wish Fox still existed. You know, Rupert Murdoch's got a bunch of stock certificates. I'm not sure what that really does for him. I wish the old Fox was still in place. And I sure hope that uh, that that some some viable iteration of Paramount is in place. I'm sure Sherry's got her needs, but you know, your legacy should be more than that you that you sold a studio and um, and further contracted what what really is a great industry. Last thing I'll say before I let you go: in the midst of all of this, I lost my mother to Alzheimer's, and I was at her memorial service and dealing with all of that. And I turned around, and you were standing there. And I just want to say um, that's who you are and that's and people should know that's who you are. 
Um, that was an incredible gesture. Thank you. And we will leave it there. Thank you. It's going to be hard starting this last outro without a story about Lincoln or Jackie Robinson or Jack Warner or Galileo or the ancient Egyptian tomb builders who conducted history's first strike. People like that carried me through 29 episodes. But the truth is, this podcast was never about history. It was always about now. And it was never about famed faces from the past. It was always about you. You, my colleagues in Hollywood, were always the mission of this show. And your encouragement on the picket lines via email at the store was the fuel that kept me inspired. We, all of us, the people who work to bring stories to life, got one another through these strikes by taking exceptional care of each other, especially when things were darkest. Getting to talk to you every week made that time tolerable for me. It reminded me on a daily basis how much courage there was in our business, how much heart, and it showed me that our strikes did not just reflect where showbiz is, they reflected where America is, where labor and capitalism are, and where we're going. Every week, the guests on this show educated me. I want to thank them all now. John Wells, MIT Professor Simon Johnson, Bill Mechanic, producers Julie Lynn and Bonnie Curtis, members of Congress Ro Khanna and Becca Ballant, Poe, Franklin Leonard, Yalin Chang, Danielle Sanchez-Witzel and John August, Teamster leader Lindsay Doherty, Scott Galloway, Michael Pachter and Joe Flint, Greg Berlanti, Sarah Gamble, Nkechi Okoro Carroll and Courtney Kemp, Sarah Ramos, Sean Sharma, Charlie Bowden and Andrew Leeds, Poe again in the voices of Morgan Freeman, Emma Watson, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Chris Rock. Remember that one? Craig Mazin, Lily Wachowski, Jason Blum, ethical AI creator Frank Correa, Gail Ann Hurd and Glenn Basner, Jennifer Fox, Senator Sherrod Brown and Congresswoman Susan Wild, Richard Rushfield and Pete Aronson, journalists David Frum, Mary McNamara and Peter Savodnik, Chris Kaiser and David Goodman, Alex Winter and Ruman Chowdhury, actors Robert Wisdom, Ashley Nicole Black and Clark Gregg, Steve Schmidt, Mark Evans and John Patak, Shattered Glass alums Mandy Walker, Jeff Ford, and Adam Marums. State Senators Anthony Portentino and Dave Min. Finally, Fran Drescher and Meredith Steen. And of course, Todd Garner. Each of them told a vital piece of the story. Each had a perspective that was somehow unique and wholly universal. They made the show. I never did get a CEO or current studio head to appear, but I know a few of them listened. And that's good, because we really are all in this together. We've learned that now, I hope. I'll leave you with one last American story because I can't help myself. For 19 years, Walter Cronkite was the anchor of CBS's Evening News and known to be the most trusted man in America. He closed his every broadcast with the phrase, and that's the way it is, and then the date. That was the goal of this podcast, to tell you the way it was, each week, as the strikes crept along, to place them in context as the front lines in a much larger conversation about the corporatization of our country and the worth of the individual. It was, as I said, a true privilege to be allowed to do that. And to everyone who listened, I am grateful. I hope we never have to do it again. But if we do, I will be back with more stories about Frank Capra and Harry Cohn and Honeybees and 747s and Walter Ruther. America, it turns out, never runs out of heroes or villains. And that's the way it is, January 1st, 2024. Because I don't know when I'll ever have this platform again, I'm going to leave you with my favorite quote ever. It basically sums up how I feel about our business, about our country, about our world, about my party. It comes from the Talmud and it goes like this. Do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now, love mercy now, walk humbly now. You are not obligated to finish the work 
but neither are you free to abandon it. There really shouldn't be another episode of this show, but if there is, please join us when my guests will be Ben Bradley and Mickey Mouse. I want to thank my incredible producers, David Farino and Hannah Baker. Okay, Alexa Via, play us off. This was Strike Talk. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.